Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful <clears throat> that, that Christ is our solid rock, uh, not any other person or philosophy or thing, uh, because we are fallible. And so we do praise you for that. Be with us as we come to your word. I pray that it would cause us to increase in our love and devotion to Jesus Christ, that you might be glorified in our lives, that we might be satisfied in those things that you have provided for us, that our affections will be set on eternal things. And we do need your help in all these things. Amen. <clears throat> well, it is that, that uh, season, the season of joy, but if we look around us, it doesn't seem like everyone's so joyful, particularly if we look out there. Not many are rejoicing. What really is joy? Webster's defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Biblical joy could be defined similarly to be in a state of gladness, happiness, or well-being. It's the kind of rejoicing, uh, the kind of rejoicing that the main New Testament term for joy denotes is not only a feeling and expression of joy, but also an action one chooses. And so we often hear biblical joy talked about as this deep-seated happiness that transcends circumstances. Happiness ebbs and flows with circumstances. Joy uh, is constant. One Greek dictionary says, joy is the distinguishing characteristic of the Judeo-Christian. The proclamation of salvation is one of great joy, which contrasts with the pessimism and despair of first century paganism. I would add it contrasts with the, the pessimism and despair of 21st century paganism. But how about you? What kind of things in life threaten your joy? What challenges do you face to being a joyful person? What robs you of joy? Are there certain people in your life that you, you can't avoid that challenge you or even attack you? Maybe they're your enemies, people who make life difficult or are stumbling blocks to having a joyful heart. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, coworker, family member, in-law. Or is it concern over politics and the direction of our country? Maybe your challenge is life circumstances. Things haven't worked out for you as you had liked. If you could have written the script of your life story, you wouldn't have yourself here at this time, in this condition, in Louisville, Kentucky, doing whatever it is that you do. Or maybe it's that your future looks bleak. The aging process hasn't been very kind to you. Your health isn't what you would like it to be. There's just one trial after another, and you never really seem to get to a place where we're all as well. Maybe your struggle's financial. It's a challenge to be joyful because you're just having a hard time making ends meet. Don't have enough money to cover the bills, let alone do the things you'd actually like to do. Home repairs aren't getting done because you can't afford them. You know, as I look back on 2022, and the things that this congregation has gone through, I think it's been a challenging year to be joyful. Uh, we said goodbye to loved ones. This year we fought battles with cancer and other heavy health issues. Uh, 
Some have lost their jobs. Life trajectories have drastically changed. We were heading this way, and now we're going this way. Threats have been made to cancel us. We've had members leave upset. We've had members recant their faith. There's been marital conflict. I can think of probably five or so at least miscarriages, and I know it's probably double or triple that. And I could go on. Life on this side of Genesis 3 is hard. It just, it just is. And for the most part, I think we, you all, have borne these trials well. You have persevered. You've endured joyfully. But I know that it hasn't been easy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us to excel still more. I want to encourage you with six reasons we have as Christians to rejoice always. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, please go ahead and turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 39. We believe Paul wrote this somewhere around 57 AD, so only 24 years or so after Christ's death and resurrection. James, the apostle John's brother, was murdered by King Herod just 13 years prior. And then 13 years after this writing, in 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to be utterly destroyed by the Romans. Emperor Nero is the current ruler of the empire, and life for Christians, at best, is uncomfortable. At worst, they're being fed to the lions. So Paul's writing to Christians in Rome during this time, and in chapter 1, verse 12, he says his overarching desire is to encourage them in, the, in their faith to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to do that in person, but this letter is going to have to suffice until he can. And then one of the main themes of this letter is found in chapter 1, verses 16, where Paul explains, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was shameful to be a Christian in Paul's day, just like it's starting to become shameful to be a Christian in our day. But Paul's not ashamed. And then for the next four chapters or so, Paul just drives home the need for justification through faith because of sin, and all have sinned, which is why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the only hope for sinners. And then from chapter 5 on up to our text this morning, Paul's main focus is on the results of justification by faith, you know, what this gospel accomplishes, and then also on how it relates to present circumstances and the believer's future hope. So our text this morning comes at the end of all of this gospel glory. And Paul caps it all off with a doxology of sorts, this song of praise, this song of thanksgiving, which is intended to encourage the saints, to encourage Christians in their gospel hope. Paul's aim is encouragement. To encourage means to inspire with courage, spirit, or hope, to hearten. So Paul's aim is to inspire with hope, to hearten, to strengthen his readers. And as I said earlier, that's my aim as well. So I want to encourage you. I want to inspire you with hope. And in light of the season, it's my conviction that an encouraged heart is a joyful heart. So I don't think that I'm taking any interpretive or exegetical liberties in telling you that our text presents six reasons Christians have to rejoice always. And I do hope this encourages you. 
So the first reason Christians have to rejoice always is that God is on our side. Romans 8.31 says, What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So after eight chapters of gospel glory, Paul essentially says, you know, how can we express in, in, in words our response to all of these wonderful things? And what are these things that he's talking about? Well, it's at least what Paul just finished talking about in verses 26 through 30, which is essentially the Christian's predestination, calling, justification, sanctification, and glorification, which we could say is a summary of everything that Paul's been talking about, I think, in chapter 1 uh, onward. So it's these things are the benefits of the gospel. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit dwells in you, the hope of a future bodily resurrection, the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. And then the reality that God works all things for good for those who love him. So what should we say to these things? What should our response be to all of these benefits that we have in Jesus Christ? If God is so obviously for us in granting to us all things, then who could possibly rise up against us and successfully oppose us? God the maker of all things, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent, all-powerful one, he's for us. So whose side is he on? He's on the side of his people. He's on the side of those who are the recipients of all these gospel blessings that Paul's been talking about. He's on the side of Christians. He's on the side of followers of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, he's on your side. God is for us. No one or thing can successfully oppose the one for whom God is so clearly, obviously for. In Psalm 118.6, the psalmist exclaims, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I think that's basically Paul's sentiment here. Anybody taken a moment lately to gaze at the stars? You can still do that in Louisville. I'm happy for that. If you have, have you considered that some of those sparkles are actually galaxies? You know, when you're looking at the stars, when you're looking into space, you're looking into eternity. Your Heavenly Father made all of that. If the all-powerful, omnipotent ruler and creator of the cosmos is on your side, as is the case with every true believer, then no one or thing can successfully prosper against you. The Apostle John reminds the believer of this truth in John 4, for little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So if you have enemies, they're not ultimately going to defeat you. Ultimately, they have to contend with the Almighty and they're going to lose. If the government turns against you, it won't ultimately prosper. The ancient patristic father, Chrysostom, put it this way, Yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procures of countless blessings, in that God's wisdom turns their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us? Isn't that lovely? For those of us who are in Christ, God works all things for their good to conform them into his likeness. Our enemies intend it for evil. God intends it for good, as Joseph told his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. 
So when people oppose us, when our enemies rise up against us, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter how powerful they are, it doesn't matter what their rank is in society, they're actually unknowingly working for our perfect good. As Leon Morris puts it, Paul has been writing about a God who, in order to bring salvation to sinners, works all things for good. He foreknows them, predestines them, calls them, justifies them, glorifies them. It would be wrong to say anything less than that God is for the sinners who are the objects of such love. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice. God is on your side. The second reason rejoice, then, is connected to the first, and it's essentially proof of the first. Many people combine these. I like to separate them. But it's this. God is the gracious giver of all things. Verse 32 explains, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that God is for us? Well, here is, here is the proof. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's that Genesis 22 passage, not Genesis 12. I think it's likely, uh, Paul's words here is likely an allusion to Abraham's offering of Isaac. You remember that story. In Genesis 22, <clears throat> Abraham was going to sacrifice his only son Isaac at the command of the Lord. But in verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So there God spared Isaac, but he didn't spare his own son. He spared Isaac because he knew he wasn't going to spare his own son. God sacrificed his own son on our behalf, sacrificed his special son, his unique son. The word there denotes exclusive Property. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption, but Jesus is the Father's own by eternal relation. God the Father gave this special one up. He handed him over to be beaten and cursed and dishonored and tortured and killed. He didn't spare him. Uh, that is to say, <clears throat> he did not save him from loss or discomfort. As Isaiah 53.10 explains, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. The Lord's the acting agent there, and he did that for us. He willingly did this. It was his desire. He gave, up, he gave him up on our behalf. And he did this specifically for Paul and all other Christians. As Paul taught earlier in Romans 5, 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? God demonstrated his love for us in this way. Is there any other proof that we need that God is for us? What, what else could he do? There's nothing else God could do to prove that he's on our side. So Paul goes on to essentially um, saying that, that since this is true, since God has not withheld his most prized or precious possession, his best, since he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the obvious answer is that he is. He will graciously give us all things. <clears throat> he will in the future graciously give us all things, or we could say bestow generously. 
God didn't spare his own sin in our salvation, so how is he going to withhold any good thing from us now? Um, that all things phrase, I think, surely speaks to our salvation. We've received many benefits of that salvation already. We've already been justified, as we'll look here in a moment. But we're waiting our glorification. At present, we don't look like much. Some of us are poor now, struggling to make ends meet. Some of us are at the low end of the social totem pole. But God has not withheld his best. And so we can be assured that glorification beyond our wildest dreams is coming. Glorification and all the future inheritance benefits. The new heavens, the new earth, exaltation and vindication. God has, has proven in Christ and in his gospel that he is for us is one who is obviously generous. Christ's death for us is proof that we're going to receive all of these benefits of our salvation now and forevermore. He's not going to withhold uh, from us any good thing. <clears throat> so brothers and sisters, rejoice. The God who is for us is the gracious giver of all things. The third reason to be joyful in our text is this, is that this God who is our Father just so happens also to be the judge of all. Verse 33 goes on to say, who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the language that's being used here is what's called judicial language. It's it's court of law speak. Uh, The word charge here is, that's used in the ESV means to accuse in the legal sense. We know that Satan is our accuser. Sometimes our own souls accuse us. Enemies of Christ might accuse us. But none of those charges are going to stick. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. Which is another legal term. and essentially means to pronounce a verdict that someone is in full accordance with the requirement of the law of God. God's elect, that is to say God's chosen people. That's what this word elect means, and it's very specific here. God's chosen people, those who in the context of Romans 8, you know, those who have been predestined and called, they've also been justified. They've been declared not guilty in the courts of heaven. So Satan can accuse, but he's wasting his time, as Revelation 12.10 explains. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ <clears throat> have come. For the accuser of our brother has been, brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. People might sneer at us for being Christians and for following Christ. They might malign us and seek to find fault in us. They might say that we are bigots or intolerant because we don't conform to society's new moralities. They might not allow us to have a voice in the public square because of this. They might accuse us, but there's no need for us to worry here. God is for us, and he's the only judge. And so in an almost humorous but seriously encouraging turn of events, our enemies are actually bringing their charges to our father, the one who adopted us. No, No charge is going to cause him to disown us. It's almost laughable. It'd be like somebody finding something with one of my kids and, and, and thinking that that 
revelation is going to somehow make me disown them. It's a joke. And he, our, our father, through faith in Christ, has already declared us righteous. He's already declared us innocent. He's already credited Christ's righteousness to our account. So we're untouchable. As Isaiah 50, verse 8 says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. His moth will eat them up. Other people might call you a hypocrite. They might even deem you a heretic. They might have written you off. But their opinion doesn't matter. Their charge is inconsequential. The powerful God of the universe, our Father, the one who is for us, has rendered his verdict, and no one or thing can change it. He who did not spare his own son. Right? Not even our worst enemies to include Satan in the world. Heath Lambert, a former Kenwood member, writes, This truth is revolutionary for warriors who, by definition, do not believe that all will be well. Justification destroys the logic of worry, reminding us that the God who gave his son will give us everything else along with him. See, worry is antithetical to joy because it consumes us with the what-ifs. And so it takes our focus off of the what-is, which includes all of the blessings that we have in Christ. F.F. Bruce summarizes this particular blessing well. He says, when God enters into judgment, the outlook for the opposing party is bleak. But if God takes the side of the defendant, no amount of evidence for the prosecution can procure an adverse verdict. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice. The judge of all is your father. Our day just keeps getting better, doesn't it? The fourth reason then to rejoice is this. Our Savior is our eternal advocate. Verse 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, this is legal language. The word condemn means to pronounce a sentence after determination of guilt. Can anyone condemn us? Can anyone pronounce a sentence? I mean, even if they could somehow get past our Father's justification, which they can't, they would still need to deal with this fact, with this truth. Christ has already received and served our punitive sentence. That's already been paid. So as Paul states earlier in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the proof that Christ served our punitive sentence is that he was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God. He holds this glorious place of honor in the heavenly realm. If our sentence were somehow left unpaid, then Christ our Savior would not have this highest of honors. But the reality is that at this very moment, he holds this highly exalted position. And from this highly exalted position, he's interceding on our behalf. He represents us in the courts of heaven, so to speak. He is our advocate. He approaches the Father on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25 explains it. He always lives to to make intercession for us. 
1 John 2, 1 explains how we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. F.F. Bruce adds to his earlier thoughts and says, the prosecutor may not venture to appear, but counsel for the defense is present and active. The Christ who died and rose again is enthroned at God's right hand, making prevalent intercession for his people. And what is Jesus pleading? Well, surely he's in keeping with the court scene. Uh, he's pleading our innocence based upon our faith in his person and work. Uh, but then through the Holy Spirit, he's also our helper, working to maintain us in the faith, strengthening, causing us to persevere. The great systematic theologian, Louise Burkhoff, writes, it's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which are not even, we're not even conscious and against the enemies <clears throat> which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He's praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. So if God is for us in this way, sending his son, justifying us, giving us an advocate, then no one or thing can stand against us. In every way that, that truly matters, in Christ, in light of eternity, we win. And so, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Our Savior is our eternal advocate. The fifth reason to rejoice is that persecution is powerless to separate us from God's love. <clears throat> Verses 35 to 37. And those verses begin with another rhetorical question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So who can isolate us from this demonstrated love of Christ which is also the love of God, right? Their love is one and the same. So 1 John 4, 9 explains, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, <clears throat> that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Who can separate us from this love? No one, no thing. One definition of love is this, that it is especially characterized by a willing forfeiture of rights or privileges in another person's behalf. Christ gave his life for us. Right? He gave his life on our behalf. And there's no greater love than this. Who then or what can separate us, can isolate us from that love? And so Paul gives a list of possibilities, most of which he had already experienced in the Christian life. Uh, as like 1 Corinthians 4.11 catalogs, to the present hour he said, uh, we hunger and thirst. <clears throat> we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. Can these kinds of things somehow separate us from Christ's love? 
Can these things tempt us to the breaking point so that we would recant our faith? Can these things somehow rob us of our salvation? Remember now that the earlier church was not a place to go, go to for health, wealth, and prosperity. Being a Christian in the, in the first century was hard. It, it resulted in all these things that Paul listed, or at least all these things that he listed were possibilities. Remember, uh, Stephen was stoned to death. And James, the brother of John, had already been killed by King Herod at this point. So can these hardships put the Christian in a situation where they might lose all of the benefits that we just talked about? Can tribulation or an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity can distress? Or how about being under the authority of an oppressive political regime? Can persecution, specifically persecution for being a Christian, for being a Christ follower, can famine, can, can being in a situation where you don't have enough food put you in such a desperate situation where you might recant your faith? Could that situation separate you from the love of Christ? <clears throat> How about nakedness? Right? A situation of destitution where you have no money, you have no job. How about danger? Threats of violence from others or maybe from the environment. <clears throat> or maybe the sword, violence, carjackings, drive-by shootings, threats of death by an enemy. Can these things cause you to lose God's love? And then Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22. Yet for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That passage is one where this righteous remnant of God's people have been faithful, yet they are suffering immensely because of their connection to the one living God. And so Paul quotes this, I believe, as proof, essentially, that all things that he's just listed and that he himself has experienced are part of the lot in this life for God's people. That this is the norm for God's people. Jesus never promised easy. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's what Jesus said. A Christian life is no picnic. It would seem, then, that Christians in Paul's day, they were really concerned about this. And I think his audience is really concerned about this. Uh, their Christian experience wasn't one of health, wealth, and prosperity. They, they looked around at their circumstances, and they didn't feel blessed. Did this mean they weren't the Lord's? Uh, had they somehow fell out of favor with God? Did God still love them? Paul assures him that this is the norm for God's people in this life. And then he concludes in verse 37. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so the answer is no. <clears throat> no, these things can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, in all of these things, Christians are more than conquerors. Literally, we could say something also like completely victorious. Remember Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For God's elect, for those whom God has chosen, 
this list of hardships and, and difficulties, worst nightmare scenarios, cannot isolate the believer from Christ's love. <clears throat> the creator of the universe is for them. And not only this, uh, the worst that can be thrown at his elect only works towards making them stronger in Christ. This is God's promise. Uh, we can face evil and danger and tough situations and genuinely say, do your worst. We, the saints, truly are completely victorious. I had this shirt growing up from a wrestling camp that said on the back of it, what does not kill you makes you stronger. And I thought I was so tough. Had I known that it was actually the pagan Frederick Nietzsche's saying, I probably wouldn't have been so proud wearing it. But that aside, uh, the Christian slogan is even better. Everything, right? Everything makes you stronger. And we're going to endure these trials because Christ lives to intercede for us. He's actively involved in the perseverance of the saints. And brothers and sisters, this passage is all about the perseverance of the saints. You see, someone might come to this text and they can say, well, yeah, these other things, uh, they can't remove you from Christ's love. These other things can't separate them from Christ's love. But they themselves can, right? That, that individual can walk away from Christ. They can turn their back on Christ. But that's to grossly misread this text. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword are mentioned here specifically, specifically because it's these things and things like them that may tempt a person to turn away from Christ. Paul says that can't happen. The true believer in all of these things is completely victorious through the one who loved them. Sometimes our worst enemy is ourself, right? But even we can't prevail against God's plans for us. <clears throat> that has to be how this text is read. Otherwise, Paul's words have no meaning. Uh, Christ's love for us, God's love for us is so powerful that, that nothing to include our own sinful hearts and weak faith can separate us from it. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for this truth. No enemy or adversary can bring a charge against me that will overturn my father's verdict. No situation or circumstance that I might face. You know, uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda beheadings. Uh, the, the strong lure of a hedonistic society. Financial pressure. Unimaginable trials. My own poor performance as a Christian. Nothing could somehow cause me to turn away from Christ and so separate me from his love. If God's love for me is contingent upon my good behavior, I'm sunk. If it's all up to me to keep myself in the flock, I'm done. But praise the Lord, it's not. And so brothers and sisters, rejoice. Persecution is powerless to separate you from God's love. <clears throat> in fact, no possible conceivable threat can separate us from God's love. And so the last reason to rejoice is that nothing can separate us from God's love. Verses 38 and 39 say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's convinced, right? He's absolutely certain from Christ's revelation and his own preservation through these various trials that he's just listed in his own experiences that nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to drive home his point, he lists all of these various categories that end up covering every possible scenario that might somehow cause the believer to lose their salvation and so separate them from God's love. So he says, neither life nor death. Nothing that can happen to you in this life. Temptations, trials, and so forth. And then not even death, tragic death, a slow, painful death, or a natural death, can threaten the believer's security, can separate them from God's love nor angels, nor rulers. The the powers that be, whether spiritual or physical, no ranks of spirits, no demons, nor things present, nor things to come, Uh, not anything related to your present circumstances, nor anything that lies in your future, nor powers, probably, this is talking about miraculous powers, uh, but perhaps also powers of nature, natural disasters, cataclysmic events, nor height, nor depth, right? No conceivable cosmic forces. And then the catch-all, nor anything else in all of creation. Uh, this is for those of us who tend to be a bit on the particular side of the spectrum. You know, those who might want to be looking for the, the fine print and find the caveat up, oh, but here is the, the jot and the tittle that changes everything. The lawyers among us. No offense to the lawyers. Douglas Moo writes, lest a picky reader think that Paul has omitted something that could threaten the believer's security in Christ, Paul concludes with the comprehensive, any creative thing, any created thing. The most formidable foe that you could possibly imagine, and then not even imagine, uh, your worst nightmare, and then every possible worst nightmare that you might not even be able to conceive of, is powerless to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love, like himself, is immutable. It's unchangeable. His love for us isn't a feeling that that comes and goes. It's a decision that reflects his eternal stance, his eternal position toward us. And that action, amazingly so, is grounded in eternity past. Right? It's rooted in his election of the saints and proven by the person and work of his own son. As A.W. Pink writes, the divine love is subject to no vicissitudes. Divine love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it. Nothing can separate from it. And so brothers and sisters rejoice. Nothing can separate you from God's love. God's for us. Uh, the not guilty verdict render on our behalf of Christ's person and work is, is guaranteed, and that verdict's never going to be overturned. No motion to appeal is ever going to be accepted or entertained. <clears throat> Vote recounts and political shenanigans are never going to overturn our victory. We are secure in this salvation from now and for all of eternity, forever and ever. All who rise up against us shall ultimately fall and not prosper. We're promised victory over this world 
and over every conceivable and inconceivable force. And the grounds for all of this assurance is God's love for us. God is for us because God loved us before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, believe it. Meditate on it. Let this truth own you. There's not many guarantees in this life. But God's love and election are sure. They're a promise. They're a guarantee. They're immovable. And this really needs to be the lens by which we view all of life. If you're in Christ, if you are one who embraces the gospel, if you believe that Christ died on the cross in your stead, taking your sin penalty, and rose again three days later, then this is your identity. This is who you are. You're one for whom Christ shed his blood. God's love for you is, is unchangeable. This is who you are. You're not, first and foremost, an Irishman or a Scot. You're not a scholar or a laborer. You're not even a Kentucky or a Louisville fan. You're one who is loved by your creator, God. So no matter your circumstances, this is the thing that you will always have to rejoice in. The omnipotent, all-powerful creator and supreme judge of all is radically for you in all the ways we've just mentioned. You see, oftentimes we, we struggle because we look at what we don't have rather than what we do have. And according to this text, we have everything. We have everything. Therefore, we must be a joyful people. We must rejoice always and hold each other accountable to being a joyful people and rejoicing always because we always have God's love to rejoice in. And so encourage one another in this truth and excel still more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us these words, reminding us where our joy lies. Strengthen us, help us to meditate on these truths regularly. Help us to be a people that is characterized by being joyful. A happiness that transcends circumstances, that is unshakable, that is deep-seated. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use our time in this passage today to increase our understanding of everything that we've just talked about of this passage. And we need your help in that. Grow us in our love for you. Grow us in our understanding of your unchanging love for us and cause us to excel still more. Amen.